There's one thing I'd like to just make sure we understand up front, that uh, this message tonight, it's for believers, okay? This is uh, it's not so much an evangelical message and you know, it's a call to salvation. This is a message for the body. I believe it's a message for this body. So with that frame of mind, I just want to let you know that this is for people who desire to follow Jesus, because that's who I know I'm speaking to. Amen. So with that frame of mind, I want to approach this kind of like a team huddle, right? Um, which all come together off the battlefield of life, make sure we gain some proper perspective. Um, now this body has dealt with a lot of battles lately. And uh, sometimes we can lose our bearings after going through things like that. So tonight I just want to take this opportunity to come together as a family of God and just make sure our equipment's on right. Like Pastor Eric says, sometimes our Helmet of salvation can get a little twisted. Looks like you're looking out the peephole. So let's take tonight to get that equipment all right so we can go back out there and continue to battle for the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen? All right. Y'all turn with me to Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. It's tonight's February the 18th, 2015. Uh, the title of my message is, Can You Hear Me Now? Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then, gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. As I was reading this parable the other day, the Lord spoke to me about these seeds spoke to me about these seeds and the importance of guarding my heart, being aware of what type of seeds you allow in your life, what you let penetrate your heart. So as I was thinking about it, I first started to meditate, trying to think of some external things the Lord could be warning me about. And as I was praying about it, I just couldn't quite put my finger on it. So I, Lord, I asked, Lord, what are you trying to tell me here? And I heard the Holy Spirit say, who are you listening to? And then for me, that became clear. Jesus wasn't trying to tell me about an external influence in my life, but about the own war that was going on in my head. He asked me, who, what, what voice are you listening to? Are you listening to the voice of truth or the voice of lies? Now mine, and I think most people's first reaction is, well, I'm listening to the voice of truth. But it became evidently clear that within my own head, within my own war that was going on, I was listening to a voice other than truth. And the Lord was trying to tell me it's of the utmost importance what voice you're listening to. 
I'm going to try to give you guys a little bit of a window into my head and into my heart. Some things that I struggle with. I struggle with accurately being able to see my worth to God. He's asked me to do these things, and I don't believe that I have it what it takes. I don't believe that he's going to give me what it takes. Here's a personal example in my life. I think most of y'all know Haley and I are in the process of adopting a child. The voice of truth spoke to us and told us that we had a child in Haiti. He spoke to us both individually and collectively. And the way he spoke to me individually is one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had with God. I had an encounter with heaven that I'll never forget. Amen. And it's changed my life. It was uh, February 23rd, 2013, almost two years ago. A couple of months earlier in December, the Lord had first started kindling the fire of adoption in Hale and I's heart. And as we tried to stay in lockstep with him, he started to confirm more and more that this was indeed God's will. Now, this particular morning on February 23rd, 2013, I was praying about various things and I began to pray in the spirit for a while. And then all of a sudden, something so powerful, something so real just started happening inside of me. I mean, I could barely breathe. I could feel immediately the Lord was doing something in my heart. And what he was doing was giving me a new level of the reality that I had a child in Haiti. The best way I can describe it is that feeling you have when you hold your child for the first time. But without the nine months of knowing and expecting that it's coming, just imagine a baby being placed in your hands and immediately knowing that it's yours. Just this sudden rush of love towards somebody. It was amazing. I mean, I was crying my eyes out. I felt like my heart was in the heartbeat of sync with the heartbeat of heaven. Now, anyone who knows me even just a little bit, knows that I'm not the real emotional type. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty introverted, even keel, just down-to-earth kind of guy. So uh, this, little, this type of emotional experience is a little, a little outside my wheelhouse. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> but I knew it was good, and I knew it was from God. <laughs> However, <clears throat> it didn't take long before I started to have a serious war within myself. I heard the voice of truth, but other seeds started getting planted in my head. Anyone who knows, anybody a parent, knows that sometimes you have days or weeks or even seasons with your kids where they can just drive you crazy. I mean, they won't listen. They won't obey. Everything just seems to be going wrong. And you can feel like a failure. Failure as a parent, as a spouse, failure as a man or woman of God. And I often allow these type of negative thoughts to stay in my head way too long. Thoughts like, you can't even parent your own kid. How do you expect to parent an adopted child? Or, I mean, come on, some people, they're equipped for that. They can do that kind of thing, but you, you just can't. 
And that would lead to another negative thought, to another one, and to another one. And they all just felt so true. And you feel myself getting deeper and deeper into despair. I mean, how often do we allow this to happen in our lives? I think most here know intellectually what God says about us, what He says about His children. But it's another thing to know that in your heart. I don't want to become too devil conscious here. I don't want to give him more credit or weight than he deserves. But it says in 2 Corinthians 2, to not be naive of the enemy's schemes, but to be aware of them. And more importantly, to have the tools to defeat them. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11 says that anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. <coughs> Paul talks here about being aware of the enemy's schemes in light of seeing others and ourselves through the forgiving eyes of Jesus. Here, Paul's talking about a man who was involved in a very deep, sinful lifestyle. But he appears, appears to have repented, and he tells the church in Corinth, forgive him. See this in light of Christ. And why? So the enemy will not outwit us. We are to be aware of his schemes, of his schemes but need not fear them because God provides everything we need to resist them. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul again talks, For we are not struggling against human beings, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers governing this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So take up every piece of war equipment God provides, so that when the evil day comes, you will be able to resist, and when the battle is won, you will still be standing. So guys, I don't have a, a new teaching or some new revelation tonight. Again, I think most of you are intellectually aware of the things that we're going to be talking about. But my hope and my prayer is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, it will give from our heads to our hearts. And we will truly believe with all our hearts, mind, and soul what God says about us. Amen. So tonight... If you're a man or woman of God, I want you to ask yourself, do you believe him? Do you believe his word? Because that's how the enemy has been working on us from the beginning. He wants to know if we trust God's word, and then he'll let our actions give the answers. Turn with me to Genesis 3, so we take a look at a very familiar story. Starting in verse 1. Now the serpent, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat fruit from any tree in the garden? Now we know the enemy is the father of lies. Notice here, his opening statement is a lie. How appropriate that Satan's first recorded words were a lie. He, did say, he said, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? God never said that. 
And Satan's question, it's more than a question. It's actually a statement. He implies that God has treated woman unfairly. He makes her to feel disadvantaged, taken for a ride, made to seem naive. Satan questions God's motives. Satan's method is office to bring us to a place where we doubt God's character or purposes by first questioning his word. But cleverly, Satan allows us to fill in the blank with our own accusations against God. This is the way the father of lies works. He uses suggestion to weaken our resolve and obedience. Woman answers Satan in verse 2. In her answer, it's a, it's a defense on behalf of God. She tries to repeat God's instructions to correct the snake. She says, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. So does she get it right? No. First, she makes God's word more restrictive. She adds to his word while neglecting to emphasize the freedom that he gave. She says they cannot touch. God never said that. She forgets to mention that they could eat freely from any of the trees in the garden. She uses less expressive language of, well, we may eat fruit, not we may freely eat fruit. Woman appears to be not completely aware of what God said. Here is one of the dangers of failing to know God's word well enough. When we don't know the word, we change it. And when we change it, we don't tend to make it, we tend to make it less restrictive. We actually make it more restrictive in the form of legalism. When religiously minded people depart from God's word, they tend to insert their own rules and ideas and they call them God's ideas. Legalism is man-made restrictions masquerading as God's law. Legalism leads to resentment and frustration, and ultimately it drives people away from obedience to God, and it makes God out to be an unkind taskmaster, intent on robbing us of joy. Proverbs 30 tells us that every word of Scripture matters. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him, Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. And when we change even small parts, we begin to depart from God's path. And as our memory fades, the enemy is quick to insert other meanings, confuse our understanding, and as this process takes hold, the result is a meaning that doesn't edify and strengthen our walk. Instead, we'll be confused and weakened in our resolve, and we begin to question God's motives. The defense for this is a lifelong pursuit of God's Word as a way of knowing Him and following Him better. We can study this interaction between Eve and, and the snake to note the way that the enemy, the enemy and sin works in our lives. See how Satan's attack is first directed at God's word. The enemy knows where the power resides in his creation. It's with his word. 
So Satan attacks at that point. In today's world, Satan seems determined to undermine God's word at every turn. The Bible is attacked from all sides. And in the church, it's also under attack. And that attack is neglect. We see that Satan's charge was that God was holding woman back from joy and freedom. In verse 1, he suggests that God restricted every tree from the woman. Satan is appealing to pride here. He wants women to imagine how much better things could be if she went her own way rather than remain within God's law. Women didn't fall for the bait, at least not at first. She responds by correcting the snake and agreeing with God's word, but she doesn't, she doesn't get the story quite right. And the sum effect of her answer is to leave an opening for Satan to expose. So her own uncertainty about God's word left her vulnerable to Satan's craftiness. So in verse 4, Satan goes in for the kill. He says, The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. <clears throat> Satan directly challenges the truth of God's word. In step one, Satan sets forth a preposition that was a lie and use it to attack God's word. In step two, the woman lacked the knowledge and confidence in God's word to refute the enemy's schemes. Now, in step three, the enemy proposes an alternative path that he will suggest arrive at a greater benefit than God's way. He says, you surely will not die. That is a direct contradiction of God's word and offers no compromise. Woman is presented with a clear alternative to accepting God's word in faith. Satan goes on to explain that the effect of eating will be having eyes open and this new awareness will make woman like God himself. She will know good and evil. Satan is implying that there is more to her existence than God has provided. If she goes outside God's instructions, she can have an even greater existence. One that rivals God's. And like most lies, it involves a partial truth. If she eats of the tree, her eyes will be opened. She will be more like God and that she will now better understand what it means to be good. The lie is that she will be less like God because now she'll know evil. She will have personally sinned. And though God knows about evil and sin, he has no firsthand experience in it. Satan is proposing that sin has no consequences, and even more, that disobeying God's word will bring a greater, better experience. Wow. And when we choose our own desires over God's commands, we will not suffer loss, but rather experience gain. This is the first and greatest lie. As unbelievers, we were captive to the enemy's schemes, and we knew nothing else. But even as Christians, we can naively follow the enemy's half-truths as we allow this pattern to repeat. When we live in a state of ignorance concerning God's Word, and when we come to believe that making our own rules will arrive, arrive at a better result 
than the one God has given us. We come to believe that sin has no consequences and can be better than obedience. Now in time, the lie will be seen for what it is. But at what personal cost? If we wait to see sinning until we see the negative consequences of our sin, it could be too late. We could have incurred an even greater penalty. Now let's remember that sin is not just refraining from doing certain things. James 4.17 defines sin that if anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and they do not do it, it is sin for them. The enemy tries to stop us from doing the good we know we ought to do, the good things that God has asked us to do. Satan often tries to convince us that we are not worthy or capable of doing anything for God. That way we won't even try. We struggle with our own self-worth to God and believe that he would be dissatisfied with anything that we try to do. Our default position as strugglers is to believe that God is disappointed and frustrated. That he is simply just tolerating us. But Paul combats that in Ephesians 1 with the idea that before the foundation of the earth was laid, he was going to adopt you and make you holy and blameless in his sight. So whether difficult days or good days at work, God has not abandoned you in this difficult season. How amazing does that make our God? That in our hypocrisy, he is still long-suffering with us. In our inability to do all that he has called us to do, He continues to lavish His grace upon us. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Man or woman of God in Christ, but struggling. God does not regret saving you. God is not watching where you are now, watching how you've struggled this week, watching how you stumbled and fall and regretting the decision to pay the price for you in full. You have no sin, past, present, and future, that has more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. This means that your salvation wasn't just a past event alone, but that now, even now, Christ is continuing to save you. He didn't forgive your past sins and now leaving it up to you to conquer present and future sins. Which means it doesn't matter how you came in here. It means God can rescue. It means God can save. And it means that those of you who are in Christ, you do not disgust him. Now this is by no means a license to sin. The intent of his grace is that we may repent. That we may be healed. And like he told the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Don't think you can get one over on God by taking advantage of his grace. He knows the motives of our hearts. Romans 2.4 tells us, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. 
Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. I'd like to take a look at another example in Scripture of how listening to the right voice plays out. We're going to start in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Here, we see Peter voices an amazing revelation that he receives from God. Now, we can read this verse so many times and start to become numb to the actual implications that it has. But this moment in history and this moment in Peter's life is instrumental. And we still feel the ripple effects of it today. Peter realizes that the man he's been spending the past three years with is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. This is no ordinary day in the life of Peter. Imagine if you're Peter or the other disciples there, and it starts to dawn on you that the man standing in front of you is not just some great rabbi who could perform miracles, but God's Son sent to them. I don't think they've fully realized the extent of the revelation at this point. I think it might still be a bit of an intellectual acknowledgement, but hasn't quite reached their heart. But in chapter 17, that seed of truth gets planted even deeper. Let's go there in chapter 17, starting in verse 1. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Here, Peter receives an actual touch from heaven. An experience that defies intellect that is so much bigger than our own minds can understand. Peter sees Jesus in a different form and he hears the very voice of God tell him, yes, the revelation that you received about this man is right. He is my son. Listen to what he has to say. 
I believe now this is starting to become more than just an intellectual revelation that Peter receives. Amen. Now, this, this truth is starting to penetrate his heart. And this heart transformational truth will stay with Peter for the rest of his life. In 2 Peter 1.16, here's Peter talking, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with Him on the sacred mountain. This is some 30 years later, but Peter is still telling the world about this remarkable firsthand experience where God the Father audibly spoke to him and confirmed that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is worth following. But receiving that heart, that confirmation and that heart transforming truth was not the end of the road for Peter. As a matter of fact, He's got a bit of a target on his back now. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, we see something unfolding in the spiritual realm. When Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So, we find out that Satan asked to sift Peter. But our great advocate prays for us. But that doesn't mean the accuser didn't try. Scripture tells us of some of the battles that Peter deals with. And like anyone who receives a revelation like this from God, Peter's zealous. He's fired up, anxious to follow Jesus even to death. However, it doesn't take long for a test to come his way. And as you know, in Mark 14, 66, Peter has a little stumble. It says, Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, You were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. Just then, a rooster crowed. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others, This man is definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, You must be one of them because you're a Galilean. Peter swore, A curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he broke down and wept. Although he had every intention to follow Jesus, when things started to look a little bit different than what he expected, he lost some of that zealousness. Now, we're all familiar with this story, but I want us to put ourselves in Peter's shoes right now. Jesus was his rabbi, his mentor, his friend. 
Peter had spent the last three and a half years being discipled by this man and had grown very close to him. He loved him dearly. I know many of you have been discipled by people in this church, people in this very room. Imagine after years of sitting at your mentor's feet, doing ministry together, doing life together. You've developed this incredibly close bond and love for this man. Then say you go on a mission trip with your mentor. A mission trip where people may be hostile to the gospel. Now imagine that your mentor is taken captive by one of these hostile groups. During this process, someone asks you if you know him or this Jesus that he preaches. And you deny it. You deny even knowing your friend. Not only do you deny it, but they kill your friend. Man, if there's ever a day where some negative thoughts can start entering your mind that drive you deeper and deeper into despair, this would be one of them. This seems like a prime opportunity for an accuser who is prowling around like a lion looking for someone he can devour. Someone whose soil is primed to receive the seeds of lies that he plants. Seeds that directly oppose a truth that you received prior. So after these denials, we know that Peter is in this state right now. He's down and he's out. He's ready to give up. Ready to go back to his old way of life before he met Jesus. Probably in his mind, he had his shot to serve God. But after the stumble that he took, there's no way he's worthy or capable of doing anything for God now. Now, we know the story doesn't end there. But at this time, Peter sure didn't. It took Peter getting some proper perspective to put his mind back in the right state. And of course, Jesus is there giving that proper perspective. In John 21, 15, Jesus can see the, pa- the battle that Peter is going through. And what does Jesus do? Does he remind Peter about the denial? Does he accuse him of abandoning him at his greatest time of need? No. It's a very interesting exchange between Peter and Jesus here. It says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Now, before we examine this exchange, I want to do a real quick lesson on the words used here for love. There's two different Greek Greek words used here for love. There's phileo love and agape love. Phileo love is like the love of the soul. It's love and affection. 
You know, God has said to have this kind of love for Jesus and Jesus for his disciples, parents to their children and children to their parents. It's not a shallow love, but it's rich in emotion and in feeling. Like when your heart beams toward your child when they do something wonderful. The other love is agape love. This is a more of a mature parental kind of love. Here's a beautiful definition that I found. It says, take pleasure in the thing. Prize it above all other things. Be unwilling to abandon or do without it. It's the idea that the loved one is always provided for, usually at the cost of the giver. Agape puts the beloved and sacrifices pride and self-interest and possessions for the sake of that beloved. This is the love that God has for us, which inspired him to send his son to be crucified and for his son to obey and sacrifice himself. It's the kind of love we are commanded to have for one another. So phileo love is about feelings and emotions, and agape love is how we act towards others. So I want you to know that in this exchange, both phileo love and agape love are used. And uh, there are numerous opinions and commentaries on why phileo was used here and why agape was here and what that all means and which love is better. But uh, in an effort not to miss the forest through the trees, I don't want to get into all that. But uh, suffice it to say that there are arguments as to which love is better. And I say it's a both-and situation. Amen. Let's look at those descriptions again. It's phileo love is the love of the soul rich in emotion and in feeling, and agape, to take pleasure in the thing, prize it above all other things, be unwilling to abandon or do without it. Which one of those loves do you want to be without? I say both and. So, I'd like to approach this conversation between Jesus and Peter in the sense that Jesus was giving Peter the exact kind of love that he needed at this moment. But also while letting them know what would be required in the future. Jesus can see Peter in his current state of depression and dejection, in a place where he doubts his ability to do anything for Jesus. But Jesus knows that Peter still loves him. Jesus asked Peter three times if he loves him, not because Jesus was wondering. I think he wanted Peter to be reminded of this truth. What an amazing healing moment that Jesus orchestrates for Peter right here. We see here what that Peter needed in this moment was to be reminded of his love for Jesus. And you know that the word that Peter uses for love is the phileo love. He's saying, Lord, you know that I love you with an affection and a sentiment deep within my heart. This is where our relationship starts with Jesus an affectionate love deep within our souls. He's simply telling Jesus that he loves him. What a great tool for defeating the enemies. You don't have to go toe-to-toe with the enemy. When you're feeling down, you can just cry out, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, you're my friend. I have an affectionate love for you that's stirred deep within my heart. And just like Peter... You may need to say it more than once. Can we try that together as a family? Can we just cry out to Jesus that we love him? I love you, Jesus. Again, 
I love you, Jesus. One more time from deep in our whole souls. I love you, Jesus. You can never lose that phileo love for Jesus. Because without it, you'll never be able to agape love. However, I, le- I believe you need both in your walk with Jesus. Agape love without phileo love can cause your walk with the Lord to be robbed of joy and intimacy. And you can follow the trap of developing a cold, legalistic faith. And phileo love without agape love will only take you so far in the kingdom. You can have an affection and admiration for Jesus and follow Him to a point. But the closer and closer you get to the cross, the closer that your association with Jesus might cost you something, might cause you to be crucified, phileo love will grow cold. And you'll find yourself warming your hands at the fire of the world and denying Christ. So, what we see here is what that Peter needed in this moment was, was to be reminded of his love for Jesus. What an amazing king that we serve who continues to lavish his grace upon us. But then in verse 18, Jesus begins to shift and he starts to prophesy over Peter. He says, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Jesus just prophesies over Peter that you will indeed agape love me. You will willingly and sacrificially lay down your life because of me. He reaffirms the truth that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Amen. And you know what? The testimony that is Peter's life tells me that he hears him, that he believes him. He allows once again that seed of truth to penetrate his heart and removes those seeds of despair and failure that the enemy planted. And I believe that he receives the power to become that rock in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. And again in Acts chapter 4 when facing the leaders and the elders. And again and again and again throughout his lifetime of following Jesus. All the way up until his own crucifixion on the cross. But it started with displacing the seed that the enemy had planted. And allowing the seed of truth to take root. It's of the utmost importance that you are listening to the voice of truth. That the seeds you allow to be planted in your mind and in your heart are seeds of life and not death. Because what seeds you allow to take root will grow. Got a few more passages and then we're getting ready to close. But let's go back to the parable of the weeds. Turn with me to Matthew 13, starting in verse 36. Jesus gives encouragement and a solemn warning about the product of these seeds. 
Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will be thrown into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Oh, that we may be men and women who hear and understand, who see and perceive, who turn to our Heavenly Father and are healed. I didn't have a new teaching tonight. My hope and my prayer is that our ears would be open to the words of Jesus. Jesus tells us that the reason he speaks speaks in parables is to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah 6. Where he says, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. He will be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. But Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 13, 16, But blessed are you, because blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. We are indeed blessed to be followers of Christ. But as followers of Christ, we can expect to be sifted, to have hardships and troubles. Just like Peter and all of his disciples, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Again, Jesus tells Peter that Satan has asked to sift him, but I have prayed for you. Prayed that your faith will not fail and that you'll be able to strengthen your brothers because of the sifting. (coughs) Scripture tells us that the prayer of a righteous man is indeed powerful and effective. How powerful and effective do you think the prayers of Jesus are? (laughs) Here we see Jesus prays for Peter. In John 17, he prays for the twelve. And that prayer gave those scared Jewish boys the power and opportunity to change the world. I have good news. He didn't just pray for them. Our King Jesus prayed for you as well. In John 17, 20, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, 
and will continue to make you known to them in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. This message was for you, Christians, tonight. Men and women of God. If you're feeling unworthy or unsure of your worth, get fed by His Word. Let it wash over you and make you clean. And cry out to Jesus that you love Him. If you feel powerless to be able to do all that God has called you to do, then get filled with His Spirit. Receive the power from on high to do more than you could ever ask or imagine. Because now, even in His resurrected body, He is sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus is still letting us know that He sees us. He knows us. That no matter what we're going through, He is not unaware of our circumstances. Though it may seem like you're the impoverished of the world, that's not how Jesus sees you. I want to close the message in Revelation 2 with the very words of our Savior. A man who appeared to be down and out. A man they laid in the grave and thought that his name would be forgotten. But our Jesus wasn't listening to him. He rose to life because our God is not persuaded by the arrogance of men. So as we close, let's listen and hear the words of our resurrected King. These are the words of Him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Thank you.